Well, good morning. For those of you visiting this morning, I am not the usual preacher, but it is a joy for me to bring the Word of God to you this morning and give our pastors who have just returned from a conference a break and uh, be able to sit under the Word of God this morning. I want to start us off with a word of prayer, so would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace confidently and boldly because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us. In his death, burial, and resurrection, he atoned for our sins, made us clean, and brought us new life so that we can stand before you and receive the gift of your Holy Spirit And we pray this morning that the Spirit would enliven our hearts, illuminate our minds, help us to see your beauty in your word. Help us to shape and form our lives into the image of Christ. Help us this morning, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off first by saying happy Resurrection Day. Because in fact, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of the Lord. We are a week after what is typically celebrated in the church as Easter or Resurrection Day, but every Sunday really should be a celebration of the resurrection, which is why the church transitioned, the early church transitioned from worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, into the first day of the week, Sunday. So my goal this morning is to help bring the resurrection back to mind, to keep it in the forefront of our minds in this season, and to show us how the early church lived in light of the resurrection, to put us in the shoes of those early disciples, and to see how in the weeks and months following the resurrection of our Lord, how they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in light of the resurrection. So, the question is, Jesus is alive, now what? What do we do? How do we live, how did did the early disciples live in light of the empty tomb? What happens next? You can imagine that they may have been thinking, is everything that we originally expected the Messiah to be now going to come true? Will he now lead us to victory over our enemies and overthrow the rule of Rome? Will he lead Israel back to its glorious state it enjoyed in generations past? And obviously we can't know exactly what the disciples were thinking or wondering or hoping, but we do know what Jesus and they did next. Luke tells us in his gospel, he is also the author of Acts, but in his gospel he tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many of the disciples in many ways. He walked with them and talked with them, ate with them, gave comfort and peace for the days ahead. And specifically, we know that Jesus appeared to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as they were walking to Emmaus, and he did something supremely significant there. He showed them that everything from the beginning 
from Genesis chapter one through that present day was pointing to him. All of history, all of the history of God's people found its climax, its apex, its peak in Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we also know that after 40 days, Jesus gathered his disciples on the mountain and gave them his final words of encouragement, gave them the great commission, and reminded them of the promise to send the Holy Spirit. Throughout his pre-crucifixion ministry, Jesus had made a significant deal out of the fact that he would not always be with his disciples in bodily presence. He says in the Gospel of John, though, that it's actually to their advantage that he leave. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in the ordained plan of God, the Son, after accomplishing his mission on earth, would ascend back to the Father and take his place on the heavenly throne. And the Father and the Son would send the Spirit to not only be with God's people and walk amongst them like Jesus did, but to dwell within them. And let's, let's pause here and think about that for a second. Can you imagine being Peter, James, John, any of the other disciples, and having lived and ate and walked and taught and performed, even performed miracles and suffered with Jesus for three years. And finally, the events that had been, that Jesus had been teaching he was to accomplish have been fulfilled. The victory has been won. He has conquered the grave. Their biggest moment of despair has turned into their greatest moment of triumph. And then all of a sudden, he says, peace out. I'm gone. I'm leaving. Can you imagine what they were thinking in their hearts? Can you imagine what they were going through? And I imagine then it was brought to their mind, Jesus' words to them, it is to your advantage that I go, because then I will send the helper to you. The Spirit will come to you. It's hard to think that being away from the presence of, the bodily presence of Jesus would be to their advantage. But think about it. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not only that he would walk with us as God's elect, but that he would dwell within us, changing us, reforming us, molding us from the inside out into the image of Christ. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important to get right. And when we do, it, gets, it gives us so much comfort to God's people because we know that in his bodily ascension and in the sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has not neglected his promise to never leave us or forsake us. But because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, he is always present with his people by the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us in John 14, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then later Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will come to him, and we will come to him. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is the promise that the disciples were holding in their heart as Jesus stands before them on the mountain and ascends before their very eyes in the cloud. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Christ ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of glory, and his disciples are waiting. Just as Jesus instructed, they gather together in the temple to worship. And at that time, the promise comes true. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit fills his people on the day of Pentecost. They're given power to begin preaching the gospel in the native languages of those gathered together in Jerusalem from all the corners of the world. And this event is widely considered to be the birth of the church, the fulfillment of the promised coming of the Holy Spirit, both as we read in the prophet Joel and in Jesus' ministry and his promises. And this fulfillment of this promise inaugurates the age of the church and empowers Christ's followers to be the people he is forming them to be. So now we look to see what happens. What is the response? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, how did the disciples live in light of the resurrection? And the first point there on your outline is that God, the gospel is preached and received. So three times in the next, uh, in the next three chapters, Peter preaches the gospel two public sermons, and one uh, kind of a private response before the council of elders in Jerusalem. And each instance of his preaching contains both an indictment 
to, on the audience, his hearers, for crucifying Jesus and immediately followed by Christ's vindication as God raised him from the dead. So let's look at those three instances. Acts 2, 23 through 24. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Acts 3.15, Peter is preaching in Solomon's portico and says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then before the council of elders in Acts 4.10, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. So three times Peter indicts the audience for crucifying Jesus. And three times he vindicates Jesus by God raising him from the dead. The resurrection is always the crux of Peter's argument. It's the keystone which holds everything together. The keystone is the part of the arch, right, that is the last stone to be put into the front, at the top to keep the stones from crumbling on themselves. And without the keystone, everything falls to the ground and is rubbish. And so without the resurrection, the keystone of our faith, everything falls down. Without the resurrection, maybe the religious leaders were right to arrest, try, and execute Jesus. Maybe the crowds were right to call for Barabbas' release and condemn Jesus with crucify him, crucify him. Maybe Pontius Pilate and the Romans were right to scourge him and nail him to a cross of wood. The disciples in Jesus' day, you can imagine their fear and trepidation, their despair, when everything that they had hoped seemed to have come crashing down but the keystone remained in place. The resurrection occurred, and it is the key to our whole faith. As Paul said, if Christ was not raised, we above all men are to be pitied. So not only does Scripture show us the preaching of the gospel as, one, as, a, as an outflow of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit standing on the resurrection, the preaching of the gospel goes forth, but it also shows that God blessed his preaching of the gospel with reactions of repentance and faith. Twice in, in the first few chapters of Acts, we are told of massive numbers of conversions in response to Peter's preaching. Acts 2, verse 41 says, and those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then Acts 4, verse 4, after the second public sermon of Peter, 
says, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. And that's just the men, the males of the crowd. Like the feeding of the 5,000 or in other instances of Jesus feeding massive crowds, that number was probably much higher with uh, women and children being in attendance as well. 5,000 men added to their number that day. So God is blessing the preaching of his word. The preaching of the gospel is going out and God the Spirit is reviving people's hearts to repent and believe that gospel and to grow in grace, which is our next point. The church, second response that we see from the church in light of the resurrection is that the church grows in love and devotion. We see an example of this in Acts uh, 2, 42 through uh, 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the church grows in love and devotion. We have all these people who have believed and baptized, and how do they live? How do they react to this new life that they have received through the Spirit? There's four main characteristics of the early church that I see in, in these verses in Acts. They were devoted, one, to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to hearing the word of God expounded before them. They wanted to know more about Jesus. They wanted to hear the truth of the gospel. Two, they fellowshiped. They were eating together and praying together. Three, they cared for one another. They were sharing their possessions, caring for the needy. Anyone who had need could come and they would, their needs would be met. And four, they worshiped. They worshiped at the temple and in their homes. They gave glory to God for all the good things that he was doing in their midst. So the third point then that we come to is that the outflowing of the resurrection and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is that the apostles performed signs and wonders. In verse 42 of, uh, 43 of chapter 2, we see that all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were, be doing, were being done through the apostles. And then jumping into chapter 3, we see a specific example of that. We're given in general 
um, idea of what they were doing in, in Acts chapter 2, but then we see specifically an instance of one of these signs and wonders in Acts chapter 3. So this sets the occasion then, the healing of the, the lame man in Acts chapter 3 sets the occasion for the first instance of persecution in the early church. So we, we know the story. Peter and John are walking through the temple and a, and a beggar asks them for money and they stop and look at him and say, we don't have any money, but what we do have is something much better, right? Something far greater than wealth and riches and even enough money to buy some bread. And they say, get up and walk, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he did. People were praising God because of that. And as they did that, the rulers in the temple um, thought that something was wrong with this. The priests and the captains of the temple, Sadducees, were annoyed because of Peter's uh, miracle that he performed and then the following teaching that he gave in glory to God through Jesus Christ. So he was arrested. He and John were arrested and thrown in jail. So how do they respond then? I'm going to look now at how specifically Peter and John, but also the church at large, responds to the instant, this first instance of persecution because like the beginning winds of a storm or hurricane, this is only the beginning that the church is going to experience. The storms of persecution and of hardship are going to only blow stronger from here on out against the church. So how do they stand on the resurrection of Christ to face these storms? The first uh, point that I I think is is here in this text, and, and, and it's really an argument from silence, so take it for what it's worth. But I see James, or uh, uh, Peter and John submitting to authority. Think about this. The man who was ready to hack and slash his way through Jesus' enemies back before the resurrection now does not resist or fight back when he's arrested. He doesn't rage he doesn't ask to speak to the manager, right? He, is, he, he goes along with it. He submits to their authority, the governing authority of those around him. He teaches, Peter teaches later on in one of his epistles, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or local officials, right? 1 Peter 2.13, be subject to, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, And Paul in Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The human authorities over us and over Peter and John in this particular instance are still under the sovereign rule of God and thus should be respected and submitted to insofar as 
They don't disobey God. This rule is not without exception, right? Submission to authority. And the second point then from that is the church stood for truth in the face of the storms of persecution. Peter was, didn't hold his punches. When he spoke to the rulers and authorities, he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under which heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. So they did not hold their punches. They spoke with boldness, and the rulers recognized that. They were even surprised by these uneducated common men who were speaking with such boldness and authority. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit and the vindication of Christ in the resurrection, they could stand firm and boldly for truth. Peter did not minimize or compromise. So in any direct conflict between earthly authority and God, God wins. We are to obey God over men. And so then the third response that I see the church making in, res in response to persecution is to pray. And pray specifically for boldness. And that's what we have read in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. As Peter and John were released, they get sent back, they go back to their friends, to the other believers, and they tell them what's going on. They tell them that they've been charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They've been given a charge. There's, we have no record of what the, the threat actually is, what the repercussions of their preaching will be. Uh, but we know that they have already been arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. But Peter and John go back and they tell the other believers what's going on. And their first response is to go to the Lord in prayer, to bow before him and pray, and pray for something specifically. Not pray that they would be protected or that persecution would be avoided, that their lives would become more comfortable and easy. They prayed for boldness, to continue to preach and teach the word of God boldly. So let me ask you this. Do we respond that way naturally? Or is that response an indication that they have been changed by the Holy Spirit? Naturally, I would think we would pray for protection. If I knew that I was going to be uh, tried for and, and condemned for my beliefs and preaching the gospel, what would be my natural reaction to that? To protect, God protect me, help me escape persecution, help me avoid 
hardship. But the early church didn't do that. They prayed for boldness. They truly embodied Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God and, and all those things that give us anxiety, all those things that would come against us will be dealt with. Seek first the kingdom. And that's exactly what the early church did. They sought the kingdom of God first. They knelt before the sovereign Lord and they prayed that though the nations would rage against Jesus Christ and his followers, that they would still go forth with boldness because of the vindication of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. So then what does that show us today? What does that teach us today? How do we live like the early church did? I have a few responses there. Things that we know, things that we, we should take to heart. First is that we must remember that persecution will come. The early church is not um, unique in that respect. Persecution will come. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Those who preach the gospel, who share Christ with the world, will be persecuted. Paul says in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. He assumes that we are going to come under persecution and that our response should not be to fight and rage against them, but to bless them. Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you get fired upon for believing and preaching the gospel. It's coming. John says in his epistle, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It hated Jesus, it's gonna hate you too. So the victory of Christ in the resurrection shows us that our vindication has already been achieved. We can stand against persecution because our vindication has already been achieved in the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. The greatest single event of persecution has taken place, and Christ has already declared victory over it. The grave has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. So what's the worst that they can do to us? Kill us? <laughs> to live is Christ and to die is gain. Killing us only benefits us. So, we today, we know relatively little. The church here in America, even us here in Huntsville, we know relatively little about this persecution, but there are brothers and sisters around the world who face this every day. They are imprisoned, they're beaten, they're mocked, they're scorned, they're killed 
for the cause of Christ because of their proclamation of the gospel. But their vindication has already been achieved. Jesus has already declared victory over them. But for us, we also know and should expect that the hardships of this life will never cease. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he gives a great proclamation that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus anymore. All of the sin that weighed us down is free. We are free from it in Christ. We are no longer condemned in Christ. But there's also, there's still on us a weight of the brokenness of this world. So Romans 8, verses 18 through 30 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory and of the children of God. So the earth and our lives within it is still broken. We still face hardships. We still face pain and sorrow. Suffering, pain and sorrow, tears and afflictions are still at our doorstep every day. And some of you know that intimately. But the victory of Christ in the resurrection shows us that this, this affliction that we experience today is light and momentary as it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One day, we will stand in glory and look back and see the lives that we live, the world that we live in today, all the brokenness, the pain, the sorrow that we experience in this life now will be light compared to the weightiness, the heaviness of glory that we experienced then. And it will be momentary compared to the eternal glory that we will experience with Christ on that day. This world, its pains and sorrows, is not the end. The resurrection shows us that. We have a hope and a future secured and sealed for us beyond what we can imagine. Think about this. You go to the beach, walk into the ocean with a cup, and take a cup of water out and you know, drive home with a cup of water from the ocean. Does the ocean care that you took a cup of water out? Will it even notice? No. The, the picture that Paul paints, Paul paints for us in 2 Corinthians is like that. The pain and affliction of this life will seem like a cup of water compared to the expanse and immensity of the ocean. We have hope for that day because of the resurrection of Christ. Our third point then that the early church teaches us today is that God 
is still sovereign. How, do the, how does the church begin their prayer after they start to experience persecution? They say, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. The, the Greek word there is despotes. It, it evokes the, the sense of absolute authority. A master who has rule, absolute rule over all things in his realm. And that's how the early church addresses God when they pray. They recognize the sovereignty of God even in the midst of their persecution, even in the midst of their suffering. They say, everything on heaven and earth is yours. Even the rulers, the authorities, the nations who rage against you, even they are within your sovereign rule. Isaiah 46, verses eight through 10, gives us a picture that there is no plan B for God. Everything that God purposes comes to pass. His counsel always stands. And Peter, in his, in his sermons, give a picture of that as well. Acts 2, 23 says, This Jesus, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So all the events of the, of the trial, the beatings, the mockery, the shaming, and the nailing of Jesus Christ to the wood are within the sovereign rule of God. The victory of Christ in the resurrection shows us that even the most heinous sin in all of human history was ordained by God to accomplish the greatest act of mercy and goodness in human history. And that's a pretty significant truth, I think, because think about all of the evils that men have devised to do against one another. The crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ is worse than those. Just imagine in your mind, what's the worst thing that we could do to each other? The crucifixion is worse. Not because of the action necessarily that was taken, but because of who the action was against. The Lamb of God, God's own Son, fully divine and fully human, was murdered. The most heinous act of sin in all of human history was still under the sovereign rule and plan of God. And so then, what about your sufferings, your pain? What about the evils that you experience that come against you every day? Are they within God's sovereign rule? Yes. Do you believe it? Do you live by it? I'll confess often I don't. But it's good to be reminded in all things, in every instance, every situation, God is sovereign. He is ruler of all. There's nothing that escapes his plan. So the next point then is that freedom is found in truth. 
Let's see how after the church prays, they've been informed by this upcoming persecution and they prayed for boldness. The text says that they were, the place where they were gathered was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We have this picture, again, reiterated from chapter two of the, of the church loving and caring for one another, giving, being generous. And I want us to think about this for ourselves. What if tomorrow the governing officials of our, of our land decreed that your convictions were criminal, that it was now a, a crime punishable by imprisonment or some other punishment to hold the convictions that you hold. Would you, with, would you turn, would your reaction to that be generosity and caring for one another or would you respond in selfishness? And think about what happens when we know a big snowstorm or, or, or tornado or whatever is coming? What happens to the grocery stores? They get cleared out, right? People got to get their milk bread in before the snowstorm comes. We naturally, in, in the face of persecution, in the face of hardship, in the face of, of uh, difficulty, will react in selfishness. We act by, by turning into ourselves and taking care of ourselves. But that's not what the early church did. They, they operated out of the freedom found in the resurrection. The freedom that the Spirit gave them was one of generosity, to be able to look after one another and to care for one another, even in the face of di upcoming difficulty. The victory of Christ in the resurrection showed us, shows us that this world has no hold over us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We are not chained by our circumstances. We're not chained by world events, by wars, by pandemics. We're not changed by the fluctuations of financial markets. We have freedom in Christ to live with generosity and with love toward one another. You are no longer a slave to fear and anxiety. You are not even a slave to death. There is freedom found in the resurrection to live the life we are called to live, even in the midst of upcoming difficulty and hardship. And then the last point here, I think the, the early church shows us, is that the harvest is plentiful that we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, to go forth and bring the gospel to the world with all boldness. Verse 31, right after they prayed for boldness, what happens? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. They prayed, God, give us boldness to continue to speak their word, and that's exactly what he did. Because the harvest is plentiful. God is sending us out, enabling us by the Holy Spirit and with confidence in the resurrection 
to have missional hearts, to go forth and bring the gospel to the world around us. The victory of Christ in the resurrection shows us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, that everything Jesus did and was is satisfactory. All of Jesus' life from the moment of the incarnation to his final breath on the cross perfectly upheld the law and accomplished the mission he was sent for. That the events, the resurrection shows us that the events of his humiliating trial, his beating and his execution perfectly fulfilled prophetic scripture. And while he hung on the cross, the wrath of God for the sins of his people was fully and finally poured out on him as our substitute. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ and the resurrection confirms that. So we must then carry this good news, this gospel to the ends of the earth because Jesus is alive. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you always and everywhere for the goodness that you have given to us, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we stand on the resurrection and by the example of the early church to see that you, Lord, are sovereign over all things. We can have hope and confidence and boldness in this life. We are free from fear and trepidation, from anxiety, because you are alive and you are with us now in your Holy Spirit. We thank you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning's hymn 406. I invite you to take your hymnal, your order of